You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Last week, uh, and actually the last two weeks, we've been uh, getting back into the book of Genesis and we've seen um, God moving forward his story with Isaac and Isaac's descendants. Um, There's very little in scripture about Isaac from a narrative standpoint, um, and we seemingly jump right into Jacob and Esau. I mean, we've seen that over the past couple of weeks, and we'll get back into their story uh, next week. But the last two weeks, we've seen God choosing Jacob over Esau. Uh, we tied that into what we see in Romans chapter 9. We see that God chooses Jacob, uh, chooses him for reasons that we don't fully understand. But we see that that choice is directed to the fact that it prevents Jacob from being able to boast And we see how that ties into our own salvation and how God chooses to work in us. It prohibits us from boasting. We see that God's grace is not given to us because of any good works that we accomplish. But then last week we saw that while God chooses Jacob over Esau, God holds Esau accountable for his choices. And so um, not to elevate God's choice so highly that man's accountability is removed, we see the story playing out and Esau is very much accountable to the choices that he makes. Um, We saw last week that Esau devalued the important uh, things in his life, the things that were somewhat delayed, his birthright. Um, He forfeits that for an immediate satisfaction with what Jacob had to offer. And so our summary sentence last week said, any present enjoyment we can experience here on this earth pales in comparison to what is coming for the believer, reminding us that sin cannot offer a moment of pleasure today that is worth forfeiting the lasting eternal joy found only in Christ. And Esau makes that mistake. He forfeits what was to come in hopes of gaining immediate satisfaction in the, in the current time and present of, of what he was experiencing with Jacob. And so we, we tied that into what we see in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, how Esau is considered a profane man because he, he lives for immediate satisfaction. Rather than relying on uh, God's promises and, and future blessing, he forfeits all of that for immediate satisfaction. And so that brings us today to chapter 26, this This chapter feels a little funny if you're reading and studying as we are through Genesis because we go from Isaac in a barren womb and him praying for his wife to have a child and and after 20 years, God gives them Jacob and Esau. Um, And then we go right into the prophecy about Jacob going to be the one that receives the blessing over Esau. Then we see that play out as far as Esau's desires. He forfeits that blessing. And then we know in 27, we see that story play out with Jacob deceiving his dad and dressing up like Esau in order to gain that blessing. Chapter 26 feels funny to be fit in between those two stories, uh, but we're going to see maybe why that's the case today. I'm going to put our notes up on the, um, <coughs> the TV for you to follow along with. I've, I did not put those in the Google Drive yet. Um, in your bulletin, you'll note that we try to make our sermons available um, through Google Drive where you can access it through that QR code. I haven't put those in yet, but I will put those in before the end of the day so you can reference back to the things that you see on the screen for future reference. And if you're following along with us at home on the podcast at a later time, we've already read through chapter 26 together. So before listening to the sermon, you may want to read through that chapter to set the context. All right, our summary sentence for today, and and we do this to kind of give you an idea of where we're going with this sermon. But our summary sentence for today, the promises of God are designed... To be received by faith, allowing times of temptation and trial to become proving grounds 
for God's ongoing presence to work good, resulting in the world acknowledging his glory. All right, so we're going to see God's promises get applied to Isaac in this chapter. And we're going to be reminded that the promises of God are designed to be received by faith. Okay, so as created beings, we receive the promises that God makes to us by faith, not by works. And then as we receive God's promises by faith, and then we live out in obedience to that, it allows times of temptation and trial. And we're going to see both in the life of Isaac in this chapter. Times of temptation and trial. Those times can become proving grounds. It allows God an uh, an arena, an avenue to show his ongoing presence in the life of a believer to work good in their life. And when that's happening, when we're going through temptations and trials and we're responding in faith, God's working good and he's proving his existence, not only to us, but to those around us. Because what's supposed to be the result of us going through temptations and trials and coming out on the other side the result we're going to see is that the world is supposed to acknowledge his glory. All right? And so our life, how we respond to temptations and trials, is meant to be evangelistic. It's meant to draw people to the Christ that we claim to love. So, yes, we're, we're called to, to share the gospel. We're called to pull a coworker aside at a lunch gathering and, and potentially to interact with that coworker in a way where we're, we're presenting the gospel and we're talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But that's not the only time that we're called to be evangelistic because as our coworkers see us go through temptations and trials, opportunities to grumble at the workplace and to complain, opportunities to, to be frustrated over our circumstances because oftentimes we share with our coworkers things that are going on in our life outside of work. As our coworkers observe trials and temptations in our life and we're able to show God's goodness working itself out in our life, it leads them to acknowledge God's glory because of how we're responding. All right, and we're going to see, we're going to unpack that statement today as we work through the text together. A few introductory thoughts to get us thinking in the terms of what chapter 26 is about. First of all, the timing of this story is not clear from the text, meaning we don't know for sure if Isaac and Rebecca have Jacob and Esau at this point or not. Now, from the way that the, the Bible's laid out, we've just read about them having babies. And at the end of this chapter, we find out Esau starts taking wives but if we're thinking in terms of how Jay, or how Isaac can keep the fact that him and Rebecca are married a secret, it doesn't make sense for them to be able to walk into a town with kids and be able to say, this is simply my sister. Remember, when Abraham and um, Sarah were letting this type of situation play out, they didn't have Isaac yet. They didn't have any children. And so brother and sister was easier to veil because there were no kids involved. Um, so there may have been kids at this time. There may not have been. It's not really clear from the text whether or not the kids are around yet, um, which also means we can't for sure know if Abimelech and Phicol are the same people that Abraham interacted with. You remember just a few chapters before, Abraham has some interaction with Abimelech. He lies about Sarah being his sister to Abimelech. Phicol gets involved as well. There's a peace treaty. But it's possible that these names are more titles than actual formal names given to an individual. And so this may be the same Abimelech and Phicol. It may be people that have come from that same line that are operating in those same type of um, offices. We're not really sure. And it really doesn't, it doesn't change the, the meaning or the understanding of the text either. 
Um, comparisons with Abraham's similar story is incited by the author. Right here at the very beginning, verse 1, now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So, you're reading, and unless, unless you forget that there's some similarities, the author wants you to understand that there's some similarities. He says, I'm about to talk to you about a famine, but it's a different famine than the one that happened with Abraham. And immediately, if we're reading through this, we're, we're incited to kind of think back and say, oh yeah, I remember when Abraham had a famine situation. So let's talk just a, briefly about some of the similarities that we see in this chapter um, from what we already know about Abraham's life. What are some similarities that you identified in your groups this morning after reading through chapter 26 and thinking back about Abraham's life? Things that are similar. Okay, one that quickly jumps out to you is that they both lie about their wives being their sisters. Difference being that Abraham really could claim that on some level, whereas Isaac cannot. So Sarah was a distant sister to him. Um, Rebecca is not that relationship to Isaac. Other similarities? All right, they both receive a promise from God about the future prior to this happening. Right after Abraham is called to leave his country and go, that's when the famine ensues and he flees to Egypt. Um, Isaac gets a promise here um, before this ensues as well with uh, Abimelech and Gerar. Other similarities? Okay. Yep, and we're going to talk about that. They both end up rich after sinful situations. Um, and we're going to see why that doesn't violate um, what God has already said and how he's not rewarding them for their sin either. Obviously, they both have interaction with A and Abimelech, even if it's not the same one. Um, it both ends in a peace treaty. Um, so that's, that's some similarity. Um, we can also see some similarities in how the land won't sustain Isaac's growth and wealth in the same way that it could not sustain Abraham and Lot, right? And so Abraham and Lot had frustrations and difficulties that were playing out with their servants and their herdsmen because the land couldn't sustain them. And what, is, what happens? Abraham says, okay, I'm going to leave the good land with you and I'm going to back away, right? Like I'm going to get out. I'm going to let you have the better land. Isaac does something very similar. The, the Philistines are saying, hey, you got to go. You've gotten too big. You've gotten too mighty for us. Um, we're going to close down your wells if we have to to get you out of here. And Isaac willingly backtracks and gives them what's better Right? We're in the midst of famine. He's found water. He keeps backtracking away from that and, and surrendering that territory to them, even though God has promised that land to him. Same way Abraham, God had promised everything, but he lets Lot take the better land. Isaac does something very similar. So a lot of similarities in this story, and I think it's worth considering. Um, we see some, some things play out exactly the same way, and then we see some things happen differently. Um, maybe something that's really communicated here is that the enemy doesn't change over time. Temptations stay the same, right? Isaac is tempted to be fearful in a situation where his life's on the line, or at least he perceives his life to be on the line. Um, famines continue to occur. The, the worry over how to provide for my family. So the enemy uses circumstances in the same way today as he did back then. Um, the enemy doesn't change. And maybe what else we learn from this is that human nature doesn't improve, right? We see Isaac give in to some of the same things that his dad gave in to. And so over the course of time, the enemy continues to use similar circumstances to tempt God's creation. And what we see is that man continues to fall time and time again into temptation because we are not progressively getting better with our sin natures. 
we continually have man and woman come together and produce children that are born into sin and they're no better than anyone Adam and Eve produced. Our human nature continues to be fallen and in need of redemption by Christ and his work. All right. Um, a little bit about Isaac. Isaac uh, lives longer than Abraham and Jacob. I don't know if you're aware of that, but Abraham, who we see a lot about in Genesis, Jacob, who we're going to see a lot about in Genesis, Isaac lives longer than both of them, but he has what we might would call an undistinguished career. Uh, he serves more as a backdrop than a main character. I mean, we're almost done with Isaac. Um, next week, we'll be done with Isaac, and we just started Isaac, and there's not much in Scripture about Isaac. One commentator said, he's an ordinary son of a great father and an ordinary father of a great son. That's a good description of Isaac. You've got a great father in Abraham who births Isaac. And then you've got Isaac who ends up being a daddy to a great son, Jacob, who becomes the the namesake for God's people. When Jacob's name is changed to Israel, that name stamp goes with the Jewish people moving forward. And so uh, a son with a great dad and a, and a guy who becomes a dad of a great son, but not a whole lot there in scripture that would draw us to Isaac. Um, maybe when we even think of Isaac, we think about his lies, about him lying here, about being uh, not married to Rebecca and it being his sister. We may also think about the preferential treatment of Esau that he gives. Um, and we saw that last week that God promised to bless Jacob. And for reasons we don't understand, uh, Isaac seems to favor Esau, the one who's not chosen. And so those may be blemishes on his character. Um, but I think this chapter ultimately should define him in God's story. Um, we should, we should see those blemishes, recognize those blemishes, but then allow this to really define Isaac in God's story. Cause we're going to see some great traits about him, um, and how he responds to God's promises in this chapter. Um, his sins aren't held against him in other portions of scripture. So God certainly doesn't allow these blemishes uh, to define Isaac either. In um, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, in fact, a passage that um, kind of lists off the uh, evidence of faith in the life of Old Testament saints, it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, it's short, but it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. The implication here is that Isaac obviously embraced God's promises, responded to those promises in faith in such a way that it allowed God to continue to work through that line. And it invokes blessing for Jacob in a special way. But we also know that Esau is going to have some special blessings given to him as well that leads to him being the father of a nation. But that's tied to Isaac's obedience um, that allows those blessings to continue to flow through his family line. I think also what we're going to see from this chapter is that Looking ahead to Genesis 27 and already looking back into the uh, Genesis, into Genesis chapter 25, we see Jacob who has a prophecy about being the one to inherit God's promises. And yet we see him having to grasp for it, right? Like he's manipulative with his brother in the previous chapter, right? He, he takes advantage of us, of a brother who is hungry and not thinking straight. And he, he basically rips him off, right? He trades a pot of stew for, uh, for his birthright. Um, so he's very manipulative instead of just kind of passively sitting back and saying, okay, if God has promised to do this, then I'm going to let God play it out in his timing. David does that, right? David's anointed to be a King. Saul's the King. There's times where David could grasp for that crown and kill Saul in the, in the, the caves. But he says, you know what? God's going to give that to me when he wants to give it to me. Um, 
We're going to see in the next chapter, Jacob continues to grasp when he panics and, and thinks that dad's about to bless Esau. Rebecca and Jacob come together, concoct a plan to make sure that it's stolen and given to Jacob. Isaac sits back. He's got the promise from Abraham, his dad. Dad says, Isaac, you're the son. Ishmael's been sent away. You're the promised one. But we haven't heard that from God yet. I mean, in this chapter, it's the first time that God steps in and communicates directly with Isaac, not through his father, but directly to Isaac now. And we're going to see that God uh, allows Isaac to inherit the promise at the right time. It's communicated to him at the appropriate time. Um, And we're going to see that Jacob really didn't have to grasp for God's blessing. If something is promised to us, then it's something that we should receive. I think also from this chapter, um, it was written for encouragement to Israel. You know, remember, Moses is writing this. He's writing it for Israel as they begin the journey to the promised land. A couple of things I think that, that could be learned from this. One, there's no fe- there shouldn't be any fear for the enemies that hate you because God's going to continue to provide and take care of you. And then obviously, we don't have to fear when there's a lack of water. If I'm an Israelite reading this and I'm about to go into the promised land and, and you'll know that uh, from your studies in the Old Testament that, that Israel runs into time and time again where they need water and they can't find water. And this is a great example of how God provides water in a famine. Everywhere Isaac digs, they seem to find water. God's providing water for his people. Um, and I think that Moses writes this. God inspires Moses to write this as an encouragement to Israel as they would look back into this text. I shared with you before we got started, though, that omnipresence, uh, God's omnipresence is a theme, I think, that runs through this chapter and a theme that I want to highlight for us uh, this morning. Um, when we mean when we say omnipresence, we mean God's uh, God uh, or we mean a theology of God essentially being everywhere or existing everywhere. I want to try to help define that through uh, one of Wayne Grudem's definitions in his theology book. It says God does not have any size or spatial dimension and is present at every part of space with his whole being. And yet God acts differently in different places. All right. So God does not have any size or spatial dimension or any type of restrictions placed on him based on his size or spatial dimension. And he's present at every part of space with his whole being. So you don't have some of God in some places in in the universe and other parts of God in other places. God is everywhere at all times, in all spaces, in all places. And yet he's also very intentional to act differently in all of those places. Okay, and and you can try to wrap your mind around that. But really the end goal of that is that he's God and we're not. and, And so it's hard to even understand how that's possible. But when we understand God's omnipresence, the way it's revealed in Scripture, we can't flee from God's presence. The psalmist says, anywhere we go, everywhere we go, God is there. Okay? So there's no restrictions placed on God's presence. He's everywhere at all times. And yet, he's very personal everywhere that he's at. Right? He's doing different things in different places. Now, I had you discuss a little bit about how does a believer then respond to God making promises... Right? Isaac gets promises here that God will be with him. Later on in the chapter, God says, I am with you. Not just I will be with you, but I am with you. And then the Philistines are going to acknowledge God has been with you. Kind of a future, present, past tense type perspective on God's presence running through this whole chapter. We know that some of that carries over in the New Testament, right? Jesus promised his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. 
Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have this extra assurance as believers that God's presence is with us. So what does that mean? If we already know God is with everyone, why does that matter uniquely to a believer? And I think what we see then, for the believer, all of God is always with us in every place. The distinction, though, for the believer is that at all times working good for us. Okay, so... Believer or unbeliever, the theology is true is that God is everywhere and he's doing different things in different places. The believer's assurance, though, is that all of God is always with me in every place that I go. And he's always working good for me in those places. That's the assurance that's being extended to Isaac is that I will be with you. I am with you. Your God has been with you. It's this perspective about God's omnipresence, not just that he's everywhere, but that he's always working good everywhere I go because he's always with me. Okay, and we're going to see that kind of play out in Isaac's life in this chapter. Uh, In my notes, I put a note, how we relate to and appropriate the reality of God's presence has everything to do with how we live. Let me say that again. How we relate to this doctrine and how we appropriate it. What does the word appropriate mean? Anybody know? I had to look it up myself. Accepted or, or maybe even how we use this doctrine. How we use our understanding of this theology. Um, how we appropriate it in our lives. How we take it and apply it to us. So how we relate to it. How we apply the reality of God's presence has everything to do with how we live. And we're going to see some examples of that. Obviously, if I believe that God is always with me, always working good for me, it's going to carry me through trials. But it also ought to give me victory in the midst of temptation, right? Because if I'm a believer and I believe, one, that God's presence is always with me, and he's always wanting to work good for me, as I face temptation to sin, then what? if I'm really grasping this and believing this, I am yielding to sin with the understanding that Christ is with me in the midst of that. Right. And so it's not just that, okay, I've, I've, I've gotten away from family and friends and, and I'm in the midst of this decision. I'm going to sin and then I'm going to bring God into it later when I confess it. No, like God is always with you at all times, in all places, believer and unbeliever. The difference is is that as a believer, as I face temptation, I, I, I take this doctrine and I apply it to that circumstance and say, I don't have to yield to this. Because God is here, right here with me, and wants to use this temptation for my good. And as I, as I, as I resist it, God is empowering me with his Holy Spirit because he's right here with me. I'm not alone in this. All right? So how we relate to this and how we apply it is so important when we face trials and temptations. All right? So let's jump into the text here. First of all, God's presence is a promised blessing. So we're going to rely heavily on seeing this chapter in light of God's presence. And right off the bat, we see that God's presence is a promised blessing. Here in this passage, we see God's future presence being promised. It says in verse 2, the Lord appeared. He appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I'll multiply your offspring 
In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. A couple of things to point out here in this section. First of all, we are called to express faith in times of famine. We are called to express faith in times of famine. You don't really ever see any, any encouragement in Scripture for us to flee trials, right? We flee temptation, right? Joseph fled temptation when Potiphar's wife came to him. He, he, he leaves. He escapes. Daniel doesn't flee Babylon when the new law comes out that says you have to pray to the king and not to your gods. You can only pray to the king, right? He stands firm. He stays in the midst of that trial. We're never called to really flee trials. It gets Isaac in trouble. It got his father Abraham in trouble, right? Famine ensues. He fled a trial that ultimately led him into temptation, right? We're going to see that he, he flees. He's, he's, um, he's, he's leaving where he was residing, and he's eventually going to end up into a temptation-type temptation situation when he's facing the, the, the king of Gerar, Abimelech. This is unique in that God directly stops Isaac from going to Egypt. You'll remember Abraham makes the same steps, makes the same moves, but God doesn't stop him from going to Egypt. But God directly intervenes here and stops Isaac from going to Egypt. If you, if you were to chart this out on a map, knowing where Isaac was and then where Gerar is, you can chart and see that he's on his way to Egypt. All right. Um, which is unfortunate because Isaac should have known the dangers of going to Egypt. He would have known about the conflict that came out of that with Hagar uh, being a gift from Pharaoh, most likely, to Abraham. Then she becomes a thorn in Sarah's flesh when, when she bears a child to Abraham. And then Ishmael becomes a thorn in Isaac's flesh. So you would have seen the conflict if you're Isaac, and yet he goes down his father's path and wants to lead his family to Egypt as well. Notice what's unique here about the stipulations that are placed upon the blessing. God says, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you, I'll establish you, I'll multiply you. It's all tied to Isaac staying in the land. God promises to bless Isaac if he will remain in the land. This is real similar to Abraham being promised blessing for going to the land. Right? If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, we'll find that God says, get out of this country Go to the land that I'm going to show you, and what will happen? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless the world through you. Right? It's all tied to Abraham relocating himself to a new land. Isaac's blessing is tied to him staying in the land. Those are the stipulations that are placed. Okay? Um, in my notes, I put the contingent blessing is based more on an expression of faith rather than individual good works. Okay, so God does not say, Isaac, if you're put in a situation where you're fearful of your life and you don't lie about your wife being your sister, then I'm going to bless you. So he doesn't say that. So there shouldn't be any uh, there shouldn't be any red flags for us when we see him do that. And then God continues to bless him. Okay, he, he gets consequences for his sin, but his blessing is not directly tied to individual good works, right? God's not keeping a tally in heaven and saying, all right, every time you do something good, that keeps the blessing. But if, if it starts to outweigh on the bad side, then you forfeit blessing. He says, I'm going to bless you if you stay in the land. 
Now, what's unique about this is if you kind of examine Isaac's life, he never leaves the promised land. In all of his life, he never steps out of the promised land. Remember, Isaac wasn't allowed to go back and find a wife for himself. Remember, Abraham said, I'm not sending you back because there's a chance you might would stay. You go back and try to get this woman to marry you. And then maybe Abraham anticipated somebody like Laban saying, ah, eh, you're going to have to work seven years and you have to stay out of the land and stay here. That's what happens to Jacob, right? Abraham says, nope, I'm sending a servant. Isaac's not going anywhere near that. He's staying here in the land. He starts moving away from the land, gets as far down as Gerar, but he's still in what we would call the promised land outside of Egypt, a bordering area. God says, nope, stay right here. Do not cross. And as long as you stay in the land, I will bless you. So it's tied to an expression of faith more than individual good works. All right. Um, Strong faith and weak faith overlap throughout this chapter, but Isaac is clearly the recipient of God's continued blessing to Abraham. I kind of shared this earlier. Abraham has probably told Isaac multiple times, you're the chosen son. Now it becomes very clear to the reader that this is God's plan, that God communicates this directly to Isaac. And maybe for Isaac, for the first time in his life, it really becomes clear that he really is the chosen son to continue this blessing. Number two, we are called to trust promises and follow examples. Notice what God does in the midst of famine. How does he encourage Isaac? First of all, he draws upon words that have already been communicated to his dad. In my notes, I put God's word, which was spoken to Abraham, is presented as a relevant promise for his current situation. God is simply doing what I've been challenging us to do as a church family for the past several months. That when we come into a circumstance in our life, that the way we find encouragement and in victory to to overcome that trial or that difficulty is we look back to the promises of God and we rely upon them to carry us through. That's what God does. He doesn't, he doesn't bring any real new revelation here, right? He says, Isaac, let me just remind you what I told your dad. Here's some promises that I made to your dad. You should rely upon those right now in the midst of the fact that you're in a famine. So God's word for Isaac wasn't something new or fresh. God draws upon something that's already been communicated. To me, it's just a reminder once again that God's word always speaks to our everyday problems. It's still, it's still doing that thousands of years later. God's word and God's promises specifically continue to speak to our everyday problems. God reminds Isaac of promises that have already been made. But then secondly, Abraham's example is presented as a relevant guide for living obediently. So not only does he bring up promises, he says, hey, you can do this. You can respond obediently to what I'm suggesting here because Abraham obeyed my voice and he kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. Abraham's example is presented as a relevant guide for living obediently. His obedience is emphasized for encouragement. So for me, the implications from this section of the chapter, we can learn from God's word and the example of others. Or we can learn from our own bitter experiences. See, this is what's, what's so great about being a part of a church family, a close-knit group that has small groups, and then we get even smaller with accountability groups, is that we can learn from each other, right? We can, we can, we can cling to God's word together so we can help each other draw upon the promises that have been made in times past. So I'm going through something, and, and maybe I haven't 
read that part of scripture or maybe I haven't really meditated on that to where I draw upon it naturally. And so as my accountability partner, as a member of my small group, you help encourage me with promises. But then secondly, you become an example to someone else as you live faithfully. You're able to draw upon experiences, maybe successes and failures that serve as an encouragement to someone else who's in a similar situation. That's what God does here. He says, here's my word, uh, Isaac. I've already told it to Abraham. And when we're talking about Abraham, let's just remind you as well that he was obedient. Follow his example. So we can learn from God's word and the example of others, or we can learn from our own bitter experiences. Isaac does both. He yields to God's word and the example of Abraham sometimes in this chapter. Other times he doesn't learn and has to experience it his own way in the way that he falls with Abimelech. All right. Um, so God's word or God's presence is a promised blessing to us as believers. Secondly, God's presence remains in times of sin. God's presence remains in times of sin. Look what it says in verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister for he feared to say my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca. So everything's going good, right? They get to this land and, and Isaac says, okay, you're my sister. Let's keep that story going. Um, the men ask about her. We don't have any indication that they took her, right? In Abraham's situation, Pharaoh wanted her, Abimelech wanted her. All we see is that they ask, hey, who's, who's, who's that? Who's that girl? Oh, that's my sister. We don't see any actions taking place from this, okay? And it says that they've been there for a long time, right? It says in... Um, Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech looked out the window. In your notes, God chooses to disrupt our sinful plans. God chooses to disrupt our sinful plans. Isaac makes this plan. It's carrying out just fine for a while. But we see God intervene here and he disrupts Isaac's sinful deception. A lack of trust led to a path of sin here. Isaac stops trusting in God's provision. I put a couple of notes here in my notes. Here's a mess. There's a message to fathers here. Be careful the example that you set for your children. All right? Just because you, you try to tell your kid, don't do it like me, it doesn't prevent them from doing it like you. All right? And, and so Abraham may have had conversations about the fact that he had done this before, and maybe all that did was remind Isaac of what to do or what he could do in a situation that was similar. The message to fathers is uh, be careful the example you set for your children. The message to children, don't follow in the footsteps of your father when he is wrong. Right? So, so God puts Abraham up as an example. He's an obedient guy. He's a, he's a faithful guy. Be like Abraham, Isaac. But not every time. Don't, don't always do what Abraham did. So the message to us as children, as we look to our fathers, is that we don't emulate them when they are obviously wrong. And some of us have had to, uh, have had to learn that lesson, that our, our dads have failed us in certain respects, and so we, we don't follow in their examples. God chooses to disrupt this sinful plan. And I think it's interesting, though, that Abimelech draws upon this, this notion here that our sinful choices oftentimes hurt others. Our sinful choices hurt others. Abimelech comes to, Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebecca interacting in some way that, that really just shows that they're not brother and sister. 
right? Like he observes something, some type of physical interaction, some type of joking and jesting. I mean, there's a word play there because remember Isaac means laughter. And, and so it's got him laughing with his wife, but it's, it's, it's intimate. Okay. And so whatever he observes clues him in and says, uh, that's weird if they're brother and sister, like that's not how brothers and sisters interact. Okay. And so he confronts him and says, what are you doing? Like, why would you tell us this? And, and Isaac explains, cause I'm scared of you guys. Like uh, my wife's so beautiful. I was afraid you would take her. And verse 10, Abimelech says, what is this you've done? One of the people might've easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Abimelech's anger is kindled over the fact that Isaac's deception could have led to greater sins being committed. Think about it. Our lies are designed to protect ourselves, but ultimately they hurt others because it causes others to operate from ignorance. And so Abimelech's saying, look, you made us think that, and I guess in their culture, because there's no indication here that they're trying to live by God's standards. Okay, so it's not... You would have brought guilt upon us because you follow Yahweh and this would have been a bad thing. It's almost more like maybe even their perception of right and wrong and how they believed their gods wanted them to live was it's not okay to sleep with another man's wife. Because he says we could have easily lain with her if she wasn't married to you. And in his mind, I think it would have been okay. Okay, so in his mindset, it was if she's not married, then she's not off limits. But if she's married for us in our culture, that that's a big no, no, even in our culture. And so he's saying that would have brought guilt upon us, maybe from your God, maybe from our gods, maybe from our city's rules. We don't we're not really told, but he's very concerned about the fact that as the protector of his city had this played out the way that it could have, people would have been guilty without knowing it. And he's not okay with the fact that his deception would have led to more sin. We work against God's glory when sinners are forced to expose our sin. Let me say that again. We work against God's glory when sinners are forced to expose our sin. Matthew 5, 16 says that people should see our good works and give glory to God in heaven. We talked about this in our man up breakfast this past week. We talked about what God's glory is and how we give God glory and what, what we're designed to do as, as God's creation. One of the things we talked about is that our good deeds is supposed to lead to God receiving more glory from his creation. More of God's creation should acknowledge his glory. Doesn't make him more glorious. He's already as glorious as he's going to be. But a lot of people are missing his glory, right? He's revealed his glory in creation, but a lot of mankind does not yield to that glory. We live out our good works and, and mankind is supposed to see that and give glory to God. Nobody's, nobody's giving glory to God here in this situation, right? The sin man, the sinful man is having to call out the sin of the believer. He's saying, you're, you're, you're deceptive. You're a liar, and we work against God's glory because here's a believer who's supposed to be directing people to God's glory. And yet what he's revealing is, I don't trust God. I don't trust God. And so the sinful, the sinful man has to expose the sin of Isaac. Divine providence saves all of them. This isn't God coming to Abimelech in a dream like he's done previously with Abraham situations. God just orchestrates the events where Abimelech happens to be at the window at the time that Isaac and Rebekah do something that indicates to him that they're not brother and sister. That's all God. That's all God saving this guy from his sin and revealing his sin and allowing his sin to come forth, which gives us an implication here. God's ongoing presence assures us that our sins will always be exposed. 
So going back to God's omnipresence for a believer, God is everywhere. And if I appropriate that properly to my life, what I mean then is none of my sins can be done in secret. Anytime I'm in secret thinking that I'm doing something that I can get away with, I need to, I need to draw upon the theology of God's omnipresence for a believer. He's always with me and he's always working for good. And if I yield to that sin, which is not good for me, he's not going to let it stay hidden. He's going to expose it, right? And it may go on for a long time because it says Isaac was there for a long time living under this lie. And what we're finding is that God says, I won't let it stay hidden. And that ought to be a, that ought to be a fearful thing for us as believers, for those of us that may live, be living in hidden sins right now. If it stays hidden, you have every reason to question whether you're a believer or not. Because Hebrews reminds us he disciplines his children. He doesn't let sins sin stay hidden. And that ought to, that ought to, that ought to convict us when we're facing sin. It ought, to, it ought to prohibit us from stepping into sin. Because by stepping into sin, what we are saying is, I want to do this so badly, I'm okay with everybody knowing about it. Now, everybody doesn't know about it when you're doing it. But what you're yielding to is, I'm okay if everybody ends up knowing about this. Because that's the type of God we serve. An omnipresent God who's always with us at all times, working for good. And this is for Isaac's good. It's for Isaac's good that this comes to light. All right? Third section we're going to look at. We're going to cover these last two real quickly because I know it's getting late. God's presence continues in times of trial. Okay? So what's discouraging... um, Did I get the implication there? Yeah. Um... Last thing I was going to say there, Isaac ends up trusting more in the promises of man than in the promises of God. What's unfortunate is that when Abimelech makes this decree that anybody that touches Rebekah's wife will be put to death, then that all of a sudden assures Isaac that his wife's okay. That's disappointing because God already promised that he was going to take care of them. Um, he seems to be more assured by man's promises than God's promises. All right, but they get all that worked out. God's presence continues in times of trial. So we're still in the midst of a famine, verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. God's not rewarding him for his sin. God is blessing him for his faith, and that his faith is expressed by him staying in the land. Okay? First of all, God's blessing shone brightly in the midst of darkness. God's blessing shone brightly in the midst of darkness. We're in the midst of a famine here, and Isaac is being blessed in the midst of it. And it results in the envy of the Philistines, right? Like, this isn't just a little bit of blessing. It's such a great blessing. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him, right? Not only is Isaac and and the human beings that are under his control eating, so are his herds, right? It's not just the people that God is providing for. His herds, his animals have plenty to eat, and we're in the midst of a famine, and it says that he produces a hundredfold. For you business individuals, his crops are excelling in such a way that 10,000% increase in his investment. So whatever he's putting into it, whatever time and energy and money he's putting into planting crops, it's giving him a 10,000% increase. Like those are great numbers in the midst of not a famine time, right? Like, like any businessman would be thrilled with that during good times. But we're in the midst of like awful times. Like this would be equivalent to somebody when the housing market crashed, returning on their investment as a realtor 10,000%. Like it's essentially saying, I'm the only one around here that can sell a house. I'm the only one around here making money in this industry. So this is a huge, 
a huge thing for God and his glory and his goodness because he is showing that in the midst of famine, I take care of my people. And Isaac is thriving. He's thriving in the midst of this famine. And the Philistines are envious of it. And then number two, Isaac's faith is shown clearly as he strives for peace. So we've got God's blessing shining brightly. And then Isaac's faith is shining clearly as he strives for peace. Because this makes the Philistines envious and they want to kick him out. They'd stopped and filled the earth with the well. Uh, so they started attacking Abraham's wells and, and basically trying to prohibit Isaac from his advancements. Um, verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You're much mightier than we. And so Isaac begins to kind of back out, right? He departs and then he encamps in the Valley of Gerar and then there's more conflict and they stop up more wells. And so he backs out again and finds some new wells and then they attack those and he has to back out further. What we see is a great example by Isaac here of a desire for peace, right? New Testament tells us to live at peace with all people as much as possible. Isaac seems to be that kind of guy. He probably could have easily attacked and squashed these individuals that were causing conflict for him. But he, instead of grasping like Jacob does for what's his, he backs out. He tries to live at peace, much like Abraham backs out and lets Lot have the better land. All right, he's thinking of others above his own needs. So, hey, take the water, take the wells. If that's what you need, my God's going to continue to provide for me. Um, God may be using the Philistines to force the move for Isaac. It may be that God is intentionally wanting to bring Isaac back to where he was, and God uses the Philistines as a tool for this. Um. The wells are destroyed in an attempt to move him away. Isaac avoids the conflict by relocating each time. He continues to pursue peace while the Philistines continue to pursue conflict. We already highlighted the fact his actions are similar to how Abraham handled conflict with Lot. It's unique to see that God um, continues to bless him and he continues to find water. Um, again, in the midst of famine, there's no shortage of water. The reason they went to Egypt, right, is because of the Nile River, because of the abundance of water. I mean, there's an abundance of water for Isaac seemingly wherever he goes in the midst of this famine. All right, last section here. God's presence results in peaceful worship and revealed glory. We already saw God promising future presence. Now we see an acknowledgement of present presence and then also an acknowledgement of past presence. We see in verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. God's presence results in peaceful worship and revealed glory. First of all, we see here the faithful, um, nope, there, the faithful acts of, no, sorry. Uh, let me give you number one. Number two is, right, the first one, the faithful acts of God lead to appropriate worship of God. The faithful acts of God lead to appropriate worship of God, right? So, so God's been doing this and God's been making promises and blessings and coming through on his end. It leads to appropriate worship of God by Isaac. Isaac builds an altar as a sign of thanksgiving, similar to what we see with his father Abraham doing. Regular responses by Abraham, acknowledging God's blessing. Abraham's always building altars and worshiping God. We're also told that Isaac calls upon the name of the Lord, right? This, this idea in the New Testament we see of confessing to God, confessing with our mouths that he is Lord. And so we see a, a worshipful acknowledgement a submission of Isaac to God and who he is and the ways of God. 
But then we also see that the faithful acts of man lead to appropriate acknowledgement of God. And I put in my notes here at a minimum. Okay, so God's been faithful all through this chapter. And Isaac sees that and Isaac acknowledges that and Isaac worships God because of that. But because Isaac has been faithful in this chapter, and we've seen him fall, but he's been faithful enough at least to where by the end of this chapter, his faithful acts lead to appropriate acknowledgement of God in this situation. All right, so he's having this worshipful experience. And then in verse 26, Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, basically, why are you here? You hate me. You told me to go away. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And they kind of backtrack and they want to make a peace treaty. And they're like, hey, we haven't done anything bad to you. And you're like, yes, you did. Like you closed up all my wells and you made me leave in the midst of a famine. You basically uh, expelled me to the wilderness where, in a sense, you were giving me a death sentence in the midst of a famine. It's already hard enough to find food and water. And you kicked me away from where I had fled in hopes of finding food and water. And they're like, yeah, and all that's evidence of the fact that your God's with you because you found food, you found water, you continue to thrive, right? And so they want to come and make a peace treaty, and they acknowledge your Lord has blessed you. You are now blessed of the Lord, verse 29 says. The Philistines desire peace because they recognize God's ongoing presence with Isaac. Proverbs sixteen seven talks about us acknowledging the ways of God, and we become even at peace with our enemies, when we do such a thing, Isaac made clear the source of all the goodness he had received, right? This is where he could have faltered. He could have failed. He could have presented to all these Philistines. I'm just really good at finding water, right? Like, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a superior individual when it comes to finding water. Famine can't even stop my abilities to find water. He could have really built up his business savvy here, right? He could have really claimed some glory here himself in that while well, all you guys can't figure it out, I can figure it out. And he could have claimed the blessing that he had and the, and the goodness that was taking place in his life as a result of his own doing. But clearly they don't come and try to acknowledge his superiority in handling a famine, right? They come and say, your God has been with you the whole way, which has to indicate to us that he was consistently and constantly directing anybody and everybody that would listen Whenever he was asked why he was finding success, he was attributing it to God's goodness in his life. Right? That's the only reason lost people would come and say, your God is good. Because the natural inclination would seem to be that you're good. You're awesome. And they come instead and say, your God is awesome. And we're going to say that because we know that's what you believe because you've been telling us that. Right? Great encouragement to us that when God's taking care of us and blessing us, that we turn people to God and his goodness. This covenant is reestablished, the one that Abraham and Abimelech had already established in the same place as before here at Beersheba. I put it a minimum here because obviously the goal would be for people to uh, see our good works, give glory to God in heaven, and then continue on that path of giving glory to God for the rest of their life. We don't get that here. Right? They come and make a peace treaty, and then they have a feast together, and then Abraham sends them on their way, and we don't have any inclination that they start worshiping the God of Isaac. So at a minimum, even if they don't come to Christ and, and become a believer and get saved and, and all that, at a minimum, they should at least acknowledge that it's happening in our life. Right? We'd love for it to go to the max where someone comes and says, 
I've seen God's goodness in your life, and I want to be a part of that, right? Rahab has that experience. She says, your God is giving you the land. I want to be on your team. They don't do that. But at a minimum, they at least give appropriate acknowledgement to God and his goodness in the life of Isaac. All right, two application questions, and we wrap up. First of all, does the theology of God's omnipresence dominate your life, causing temptations to be crushed and fears to be extinguished? Does the theology of God's omnipresence dominate your life, causing temptations to be crushed and fears to be extinguished? See, I want... I want our understanding of God's omnipresence and his promises. Going back to our summary sentence. The promises of God are designed to be received by faith, allowing times of temptation and trial to become proving grounds for God's ongoing presence to work good, resulting in the world acknowledging his glory. Right? So when temptations come and and trials come and fears come, As a believer, does my theology of God's omnipresence dominate my thinking so much (coughs) that I recognize if I give in to this temptation, God is going to expose my sin, which means instead of people giving glory to God, God's glory is is. um, It's seemingly detracted from right as a lost person, instead of me saying, wow, you're God's good. I'm left to wonder, why do you claim to follow your God when you do this? Like Your actions don't match with what you say you believe. So as we come to temptations, we need to, as believers, say, okay, I can either, I can either respond to this in such a way that people will give glory to God, which is my purpose in life, or I can yield to this for a momentary uh, opportunity of satisfaction, realizing that this will be exposed at some point and others will have to come in and help deal with this and help clean this up. And, and it's going to detract from God's glory because people are going to be exposing or be exposed to the fact that a believer who claims to love God's promises and his goodness more than sin is yielding to sin once again. And it should also cause us when we're in situations where we're fearful of our own protection or our own provision to also be able to draw upon God's promises and his presence in our life to always do good and to always work good in our life. That's my question for you. Does a theology of God's omnipresence, not just that he's always everywhere, but that as a believer, he's always everywhere for you. Does that dominate your life? Secondly, how will unbelievers see the presence of God working good in your life? How will unbelievers see the presence of God working good in your life? How can you structure your life in such a way? That unbelievers will see God's omnipresence, his ongoing, continued, active, good presence in your life, and give glory and acknowledgement to God for that. See, in the Old Testament, it seems to be a little bit easier because it's appropriated with, or it's, it's tied to um, physical material blessing. Right? It was an obvious indicator. That's not, that's not the case in the New Testament, right? Like we don't have promises that God will fill our bank accounts and, and, and fill our toy boxes with stuff so that others can say, wow, your God's good. Wow, your God takes care of you. That, that's not the promise. The promise in the New Testament is that we may not have any toys or have any stuff, and we're still content. And for people to look at us and say, wow, your God must be really good because you don't have anything, and you've learned the secret of contentment like Paul talks about in Philippians.
How will unbelievers that you come in contact with see the presence of God working good in your life? How can you communicate to them the source of all the goodness that you have in your life in such a way that they acknowledge God appropriately? That's what we see in this chapter. A chapter that's not taught much, right? Like you, you, This may be the last sermon you hear on this chapter. Um, and I hope you walk away from it and leave it realizing that this is, this is Isaac. This is about all we get about Isaac. He's a great example to us of, of leaning on old promises and old examples to help encourage him to do the right thing in his life and to be very aware of God's presence. And when we grasp God's presence as being ongoing in our life, it helps us to face temptations and trials in a way where God ends up, and not God ends up being more glorious, but God's glory ends up being uh, made known in a further way where more people are acknowledging him than prior to us going through those situations. All right, let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for this chapter. I thank you for recording it for us in Scripture. I thank you for the lessons that can be learned. Ultimately, God, we want to see this chapter as a story that um, contains human characters, but ultimately it's about you. It's about your presence. Um, It's about you making promises to your creation. It's about you keeping those promises. It's about us responding in faith. And when we're faced with trials and temptations, believing that you're a good God and that we don't have to give in to temptation or cower in fear, that we can trust that you are always and every day working good for us. And Father, we're thankful that in the same way Isaac's blessings were tied to Abraham's obedience, we know that um, that ultimately our inheritance is tied to Christ and his work. Um, And so, Father, we praise you and thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that much of what we experience as your children is based on the inheritance that we receive because we are now in Christ and tied to Christ through our salvation. So, God, I pray that we would leave here today uh, with with a worshipful heart, with a heart that is is in awe of you and your goodness to us, um, that we can receive these promises and blessings and leave here today um, calling upon your name all week long. And God, I pray that as we face temptations and trials this week, that this, uh, this time in your word would serve as the encouragement needed to help us flee and stand appropriately. God, we want to be uh, agents that are um, all about your glory. We want to be individuals that have been recruited to draw people's attention to you. God, we know that happens in gospel conversations, but God, we also see that it happens in the way we live our everyday life. Help us to be individuals that receive your goodness and then appropriately show people you are the source of that goodness, leading them to acknowledge you in ways that they were not before. We praise you and and ask for your continued presence in our life, knowing that we are asking for something that's already been promised. So we do so with full assurance you answering that prayer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.